All right, so uh, step eight. Step eight says, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Um, actually, it's one of my favorite chapters in the 12 and 12. This is Bill Wilson's commentary on the 12 steps. Because it's a step that seems like kind of a, a throwaway step. It's like made a list. I mean, okay, what? And I think sometimes the, the interim steps like that, like step six and uh, step eight, uh, can force you to kind of look a little harder because it's not so obvious what they're, what they're about. So actually, I want to read a little bit from this uh, chapter. So steps eight and nine are concerned with personal relations. First, we take a look backward and try to discover where we have been at fault. Next, we make a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we have done. And third, having thus cleaned away the debris of the past, we consider how, with our newfound knowledge of ourselves, we may develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. So just the, starting with this idea that these steps are about personal relations, so they're not just about making amends. You know, as the, as the um, third thing that he suggests um, makes clear, this is about really changing the way we, we relate with people and healing, not just healing past, but um, creating positive relationships as we move forward. And so just to start talking a little bit about this in relation to Buddhist practice, this is one of the places where I really think the 12 steps offer something that's certainly not in any obvious way a part of Buddhist practice. Um, making amends in and of itself is a very specific practice and many Buddhist teachers teach forgiveness practices so there's a relationship there but um, you know the specifics that the step and the steps kind of offer I think really uh, can help us to kind of get down to business in a way that sometimes Buddhist teachings can be kind of light and, you know, vague. Uh, I mean, particularly, you know, I hear Dharma teachers talk about the precepts as though they were just these kind of theoretical things. Uh, and, uh, you know, that everybody can kind of, well, choose, decide for yourself, you know, what's really... And when they start to talk about intoxicants as well, you know, a glass of wine with dinner, it's, it's really, it's like, you know, you're, who's your audience for this, you know? <laughs> Not me. Um, so I, I love that the steps really kind of put this in our face, that, you know, if you've harmed people, you need to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and I, so something that came up for me today, I don't it's this weird flash I had. Uh, 
about uh, the, it's kind of the two. They're they're talking about these three personality types in, in some of the Buddhist teachings about the desire type or the greed type, the aversive type, and the delusive type. And um, you know, the greed type is somebody who's kind of looking for new experiences and kind of has a very positive tends to have a positive outlook on things and look, you know, sort of the optimist looks at everything in a positive way and, um, uh, you know, kind of outgoing in that way. And the aversive type tends to be more critical and uh, and maybe more introspective, uh, but uh, have a um, kind of more more skeptical view of the world. The delusive type is just kind of like not very clear about what's going on at all. Uh, maybe they don't even have an opinion actually about things. Um, but I had this flash of how uh, a greed type, which is kind of a nice, there's a positive quality to it, but when it, when it goes to an extreme can turn into a kind of denial which is like, oh, everything's okay. Like, don't worry. Yeah, no, no worries. You know, everything's going to work out. And it's, you know, no, it's not really a problem. You know, that kind of way that can become a kind of denial. That's one of the forms of denial that addicts have. You know, I'm just partying. You know, it's okay. And then, and then the extreme of the the aversive type is, uh, well, it's their fault. It's not my fault anyway, you know. I, you know, and it's kind of this blaming and and uh, uh, you know there may be other things. These are the things that came up for me as I was thinking about this today. That um, it's just it's like this critical thing. Well, you know, and you know I need to, you know I need to use because you know I can't stand the world. It sucks, you know. So no wonder I want to be loaded, which is not. A, I'm an aversive type, so you know that's, that makes sense to me. <laughs> One of the things that struck me as kind of interesting is that when these get to these extremes, they're both diluted. <laughs> they both become diluted types because they're both in denial. You know, neither of them is is being honest, and fundamentally, they're not taking responsibility. Right, and that's what steps eight and nine are about. Uh, you know, at least as a starting point, about taking responsibility, and and uh, you know, it's it's su- such a. I mean, being an addict in itself is on this sort of existential way, not taking responsibility because we're not willing to be alive in a in the pure sense of this is life. This is what I get. You know, am I willing to deal with that? No, I'm not. I'm going to alter my consciousness. I'm just going to get screwed up because I don't want to deal with life as it is. I'm not willing to accept the way things are. Um, so, you know, that just was like a little piece that it came to me and struck me as interesting today. And I was thinking about a particular person I know who's a very positive person and and I was having I, I it was great I, I got a resentment <laughs> I was like because I, I like made up this thing where it's like see if you get so damn positive then you're gonna be like this and then you're in denial so huh, so I'm right <laughs> and then I was like oh wait 
oh, there's a problem with that. <laughs> Darn. Okay, so I guess I'm going to be teaching in little pods tonight. That was one pod. To escape looking at the wrongs, we have done another. We resentfully focus on the wrong he or she has done us. This is especially true if he or she, in fact, behaved badly at all. Triumphantly, we seize upon his or her misbehavior as the perfect excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own. So that's the aversive. That's that kind of part, one of the version of that aversive. You know, oh well, you know, may, maybe I was bad, but they were really screwed up. You know, and you can sort of build your whole life story on that. It was my parents' fault. You know. In many instances, we shall find that though the harm done others has not been great, the emotional harm we have done ourselves has. Very deep, sometimes quite forgotten, damaging emotional conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists, which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. That's a pretty heavy little couple of sentences there that Bill got into. <coughs> it, it sounds like he's talking about trauma, you know, but kind of self-inflicted trauma. Um, and it, it just, it's very painful to think about ourselves in that way. Um, at least it is for me. And I would say, bringing it back to our meditation practice, that this is one of the places where we can work with those things. That these are the kind of feelings that do start to bubble up when we start to go deeper into our practice. It's one of the reasons why it's uncomfortable to meditate, especially when we're just starting to practice. Because stuff that we have kind of been holding down will start to come through. The the power of mindfulness practice is that to some great extent we can learn to just be with by doing nothing. Be with and feel these things and allow them to kind of get processed and, and to uh, kind of, uh, I, I would say, get healed, which doesn't mean that they go away. Healing means they bec- there's a wholeness around them. They become integrated into our lives. Like, yeah, there are wounds, you know, some of this. I, I think just growing up and going through life, there are wounds, and some of them don't get healed. Uh, and, and to me, a lot of aging uh, wisely is learning to live with wounds not thinking they should all go away. The losses, whether it's the loss of your parents or a child, or um, whether it's some professional failure or relationship failure, we carry those things with us. And, uh, you know, how do you hold that stuff? You can try to forget it. You can try to write it off. But 
I think that uh, having a heart that's open and balanced. One of the topics, I was at the family retreat, the Spirit Rock family retreat last weekend with my daughter, and uh, one of the topics we were talking about was equanimity. This is one of the four Brahma Viharas. There's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and then equanimity. And equanimity is kind of the crowning one of these uh, practices and, and attitudes and emotions. And it's not apathy. It doesn't mean that you don't feel. And it's not a perfect balance. Um, it's a, there's an, I think that the 12-step correlate to the Buddhist word equanimity is acceptance. And of course that word gets tricky because people think, well, some things aren't acceptable, right? So that's not what acceptance means. It doesn't mean condoning something. It doesn't mean that you're passive. But it means that things are as they are in this moment. How are you going to respond to that? Not, you know, how are you going to react to that? But, and if you're going to skillfully respond, you need to be able to be with it without getting caught up in habitual reactions, habitual emotional reactions. So that's what this practice, to a great extent, it's like a strengthening of the heart or a strengthening of our spirit that allows us to be with these things that come up. And my friend Lloyd Burton was a, a medic in Vietnam. And... Um, you know, I, I don't have to say anything about what that means. It, you know, he, was, he was trying to, you know, he had a medical role in the midst of war. So he came back, as one does, filled with horror. And he was drawn to Buddhism. He started to practice in the middle of a retreat. This just huge panic came up. And, and he had been having nightmares for years, and it all started to come up right in the middle of a silent retreat. And because it was in this context, he was able to start to deal with it in a different way and process it in a way that allowed him to, I don't think letting it go is the right word, but to live with and to have equanimity with that. And, that trem- and actually, that's the story about his story is in two of Jack Cornfield's books, two of his books, in A Path with Heart and in A Wise Heart. He tells Lloyd's story, or quotes Lloyd, which is, tells you how uh, uh, important that story is to Jack. Um, but that, someone who can, you know, hold the horrors of war and trauma uh, within, within uh in that way, has to have really developed tremendous courage, tremendous heart strength. And um, you know, the, one of the terms that used to be used a lot more than it is now about the spiritual path was talking about a, a, a being a spiritual warrior. Uh, I guess there's that book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and, and Carlos Castaneda, Talk, say Don Juan would talk about being a spiritual warrior. 
I think maybe that kind of went out of fashion just because people couldn't quite hold that in a kind of uh, pacifist, in a nonviolent way. But, but I do think that there's, that that can be a useful image in terms of that kind of strength, of inner strength that uh, we are developing and that we need to have to allow these things to come up, to allow them to come through, to live with them. Um, for me, there, there was a tremendous freedom that came with this process of amends. And it was essentially the freedom uh, from self-hatred because, I, uh, because there, ca- there came a forgiveness with it. Uh, as long as these, the wrongs I had done couldn't be acknowledged and accepted, then they were m- much bigger monsters in my mind than they were once they came out and I was just able to admit. Because the, the real problem with uh, having, mis- you know, having done, made mistakes in your life and harmed people is that it's a threat to your ego. You know, if I'm not a good person, if I'm not the person that I think I sh- need to be, then I th- that's a problem. That's, uh, I'm in danger of, of you know, being a bad person or being something I don't want to be. And so uh, when that's not resolved in any way, it, it has to be kind of held down. And, but once... I realized the the um, the inher- sort of accept the inherent imperfection of being a human being, you know, and that oh, and realize that I'm not supposed to be all perfect and good. Then it's not there's nothing to threaten. And of course, you know, the in the twelve step world we say self centeredness is the problem. You know, and that's a, so. If that self is attacked, it's it's a threat to us. In Buddhism, we kind of say, "Well, look at that. What you're calling yourself? It's, there's nothing really there. There's no there there. So there's nothing really to protect. So these two views can really help us to get over this way that we create our own suffering by not being, you know, willing to acknowledge our imperfection. And it's tremendously freeing to realize that, that we don't have to protect our ego. We don't have to protect ourselves. It's okay. It's very simple in a way, you know. But, um, I mean, for me, going to AA meetings or whatever meetings you might go to and hearing people talk about their imperfection freed me to be imperfect. You know, so that was, for me, that was the starting point of inventory and amends, was hearing other people's story. I think if I'd had to do this, like somebody gave me this book and said, you go home and do this alone, well, that's why we have a program, right? <coughs> a fellowship. And it, it would have been impossible. It only works to me in the context of community. It's why it's you know that's why the uh, the preciousness of a twelve step fellowship 
is the honesty in it. And it's, you know, those of you who've heard me talk before, I've heard, well, you know, I've heard me talk about this as well, that, that often in spiritual communities like, like Spirit Rock, there is a tendency not to be honest about our imperfection because it, there isn't, doesn't seem to be a place for that. You, know, you come in here and you look at these bodhisattvas and you know, there's some teacher up here who seems to be so wise and have it all together and you know, everybody kind of seems to be so good. Everybody's meditating and everybody here seems like they're so spiritual and what's wrong with me? And so I can't sort of say like where I'm at, um, and so it can, this kind of scene can perpetuate a certain kind of denial, which I think really shortchanges us in terms of our spiritual path. Because uh, I, I think a spiritual path without absolute acknowledgement of our imperfection is so far from being complete <laughs> so, that it's just it's lacking the foundation of of a spiritual path, which is the truth. The first noble truth the Buddha talked about was the truth of suffering. But, you know, people don't really want to come into a meditation center and talk about their suffering. But why, why would you come here? Just so you can sit still and do nothing? You can do that at home on your couch. While the purpose of making restitution of others is paramount, it is equally necessary that we extricate from an examination of our personal relations every bit of information about ourselves and our fundamental difficulties that we can. So, this step is about self-examination again, which I've heard that meditation can be helpful in that process. <laughs> Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism and addiction, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than this one. Something else that I don't think we talk about that much in the AA rooms, defective relations with other human beings are nearly always the immediate cause of our alcoholism. No. True, true. Calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insight. We can go far beyond those things which were superficially wrong with us to see those flaws which were basic, flaws which sometimes were responsible for the whole pattern of our lives. Wow. And this is just from making a list of those we had harmed. How about that? We can see flaws which were responsible for the whole pattern of our lives. I think that I used that line, whole pattern of our lives, as one of the subtitles in chapter 8 in my book, One Breath at a Time. Because uh, this really, it's underlined in here. And this is the book I was reading when I wrote that book. Um, 
Wow. I mean, that to me just is so, you know, it's a big statement. And it, it, it really points to the importance of this kind of reflection. And again, you know, you come to the Buddhist world seems to be about, you know, just meditating or being, you know, getting peaceful or something. And, and Bill is really saying something very different about that self-reflection. Um, So, the last paragraph, excuse me, let me do a little bit. So, he says, when we're making this list, he says, when our pencil falters, we can fortify and cheer ourselves by remembering what AA experience in this step has meant to others. It is the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. Sounds good. I think I'm going to go home and make a list if I'm going to get all that out of it. So I don't ordinarily sit up here and read 12-step literature, um, but uh, I, I love that, that stuff and that step in it. It's so, I remember reading it when I was writing One Breath at a Time and going, I know I've read this before, but I never really read it. Um, and because so much of that, I think, it's, it's, he's really, I think he just goes so deep in that step. And I'm not that big a fan of Bill Wilson, other than thank you, Bill, for you know, saving our lives being one of the people to do that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, he's a flawed, he was a flawed person. Gee. Um, <coughs> but um, I do really think that he's digging up some very, very rich stuff there. I kind of wonder how did this guy think like this? Yeah. 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 Well, interesting, you know, um, Don Latin, his, his newest book, Distilled Spirits, he talks about how, you know, Bill and um, Lois drove cross country in, the, I think it was in the 40s, and they drove out to, and they visited all these different meetings. And they, when they got to L.A., they went to uh, this uh, spiritual center called Tribuco Canyon. It was founded by a, this um, English philosopher named Gerald Hurd. And Bill was really looking into some deep stuff. He didn't just make this stuff up. He was really exploring a lot of heavy stuff. And, and he met Aldous Huxley at that point. And, and was, they were the ones who eventually then turned him on to LSD. Um, so, you know, he definitely was a seeker, a spiritual seeker, and, um, you know, a kind of an, it seems like he kind of became a kind of intellectual, too. Um, and I think it's circumstances, you know, in a way. I think circumstances can force you into not force you, but bring out 
things that might not otherwise. I mean, for myself, I mean, I, you know, people will say to me, wow, your book is so amazing. You know, like, as though I knew everything I was going to say in that before I started to write it. You know, and most of it I figured out as I was writing it because I had to write it. You know, it was like, what am I going to say about step eight? Oh, you know, and then I would have to, I was looking into it in a much deeper way than I would have, than I ever did in my own program. And I think sometimes that, that the world just brings things out of us um, when, when we put ourselves in that position. Not to compare myself to Bill Wilson, because obviously I'm a way better writer and you know much more <laughs> spiritual person than him. But uh, anyway, so we have a few minutes left. If there are any thoughts or comments, anyone corrections, insults, anybody wants to fling? Yeah, hi. I have a question. Um, you were speaking about the effects of trauma, the subconscious effects, yeah. and perhaps working uh, through those via meditation. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts regarding whether that alone is enough or whether that would be um, yes. the subject of something to do in therapy? And if so, which type of therapy uh -oh. would you recommend? Well, geez. okay. First of all, I definitely think you need more than just sitting and following your breath. I, I mean, even in that context, it's if, if there's some serious stuff, there should be, you want to be, have some kind of a meditation teacher who's going to help you to work with it. Uh, directly. Um, and yes, I think a, a, a psychotherapist, particularly one who's trained in mindfulness, uh, can be, is more or less essential for most people. Um, the, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, so I'm really talking just in general terms. What I have heard and what is kind of the has become kind of a, uh, associated with spirit rock, or a lot of the spirit rock teachers have become engaged in is somatic experiencing, which is specifically designed for working with trauma. It's the work of Peter Levine, I think. He has a, a couple of books, probably in the bookstore. One of them is Waking the Tiger, and he has another newer one. I've read some of that stuff, and I don't understand it. Um, but what I get is that there's this aspect of trauma that gets kind of stuck in the body and that the people who are skillful of helping people with it get them you know, somatic experiencing. So it's like experiencing the trauma or re-experiencing it in the body, but in a conscious way because the, the trauma usually it's unconscious and sometimes we're literally physically unconscious. He describes in his, sec his newer book, he describes getting in a car accident, and I'm not sure if he was knocked unconscious, but he, in any case, he was in the back of the ambulance, and he realized that he'd had this trauma, and he started working with some of the stuff that he works with other people with, and it was kind of, there's a whole system kind of with it. That's all I can tell you. But I'm sure there are other ways, you know. Okay. Hi. Can I write? Yeah. Max will come with the microphone. 
Uh, no. It's on. It is? There. Hi. So I heard you talk about, I mean, around at Spirit Rock, we talk about having a practice. And in 12 Steps, we talk about having a program. Right. And I've been sort of sitting here thinking about the relationship between 12 Steps and Dharma, you know, and whether I wanted to ask you how you see those things connecting in terms of are they sort of side by side or is one part of the other? Are they interlinked in other ways? And how do practice and program relate for you? kind of what I teach, and it's kind of what I write about. So I would recommend buying my books. Actually, I'd recommend buying multiple copies of my books, actually, because you'll probably give them away, and people will steal them. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think they, work parallel and together. Uh, Parallel in the sense that, you know, when you go to a 12-step meeting, you're not going to share about Buddhism, you know. You got, you got to work your program and what, you know, one of the, uh, I'm not going to be able to answer your question, so I'm just going to say a few things. Uh, One of the things that's sort of coming up in the kind of Buddhist in recovery world is the idea of kind of uh, having some kind of a program that's not 12-step, that's totally Buddhist. And um, which is, you know, fine as long as you're not doing that to avoid doing the hard work, you know, because that's the thing. The steps kind of put it in your face. And a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know, do I really need to do this? You know, maybe I should just meditate and like, Send loving kindness to everybody, and then I'll be okay. You know. Um, so, to, for me, there's certain things about the steps that I just I don't get out of Buddhism, even though you could say that they are in Buddhism. But I mean, that's why I'm reading so much from Step Eight here. You know, yeah, you can find that in various Buddhist teachers' stuff, but. It, the way it's brought out and the way it's emphasized, not so much. Um, and there's just, as I've talked about, the community, the fellowship, the honesty, you know, all of that. The, the you know, Spirit Rock Meditation Center is not a rehab, you know. It's not a, a place to come and treat your addiction. And that's what <laughs> meetings are for, specifically. Y- this can help in your rehabbing and your uh, treatment, but it's, that's not what it's about. So, you know, something's going to get left out. At the same time, as far as I'm concerned, there, you know, if you want serenity, you're not going to find that, I mean, real deep serenity <laughs> And stillness, and even in the inner reflection that you you're going to get here that you probably won't get at that many meetings. I mean, yeah, I I find it it helps me to calm down, you know, to go to a meeting. But meditation is something different, and r- real meditation, and you know, the twelve step literature doesn't. They didn't know about it, you know. 
So, so there's two. There, so they're separate in those ways. But in, for me, what happened was that at a certain point in my recovery, around five or six years, I'd, I'd already been practicing Buddhism before I got sober, and they were kind of going along. I couldn't kind of integrate them, and at a certain point, they started to come together. And for me now, they're very much integrated. But that was a process, and, and, and they, they still have their kind of separate lives. I mean, I study the Buddhist suttas and things like that, and, you know, teachings that are just, you know, strictly Buddhist, you know, and, and I go to meetings. And, but uh, in terms of, for me, how, how the program and my, my practice and my program, how they live in me, they're together. Because they are essentially expressions of the same, same thing. The, the wish to be free, the wish to be happy, the wish to be compassionate, the wish to be a good person. Um, so, and the clock just turned to 9.30. So, um, so I do uh, invite you all to come to Berkeley tomorrow. It's not that far. I just drove over from there tonight. Uh, and um, it's uh, Yoga Kula is a lovely yoga center. It's actually nice. I, I teach, I have a sitting group on Wednesday nights there that I share with Wes Nisker. Um, but um, my wife has ordered a cake that has the laughing Buddha. <laughs> On the cake, you know, one of those pictures, it's going to be awesome. And my friend Suzanne has made, like, bars. She's like an awesome bakery, baker, kind of, she's, those are all going to be just freely given. <laughs> so it should really be a fun night. So, um, but let's, let's just close with uh, something. So as we heal ourselves, we heal the world. As we heal ourselves, we heal our relationships. As we heal ourselves, we find that it's not about us. As we heal ourselves, we naturally give it away. As we heal ourselves, we heal the world. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings find joy and compassion, connection. May all beings be free. Thank you. Um, I did not mention Donna, which is the way that I am supported through these teachings here at Spirit Rock. So 
They have a bowl if you haven't already donated, if you can give something for the teachings. Greatly appreciated. Drive safely. Rest well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.